0: Welcome to the reading of the Quad City Times for Thursday, February 8th. All material heard on iris is intended solely for the use of people with print disabilities. Your readers today are Teresa Whitaker and Mark Morrison. Here's our first story.
1: Davenport Council working on budget by Sarah Watson. Davenport, like other Iowa cities and local governments, is preparing its first budget since tax changes at the state level went into effect. This past week kicked off a series of work sessions with City staff and Council members to discuss budget recommendations for the next fiscal year. The next workshop will be Saturday on the Capital Improvement Budget. The City Council will hold a public hearing on the proposed tax levy during a newly required special meeting at 5 p.m. March 27th, then hold a public hearing on the budget, April 17th, and actually vote on the budget, April 24th. Here are a few things to know. Under Davenport's proposed fiscal 2025 budget, which starts July 1st, the city would spend less on capital projects than in previous years. The city's proposed fiscal 2025 budget is $239 million, about $3 million less than 2024's $242 million budget. That's driven by less spending on capital projects, down about $49 million in fiscal 2024, to a proposed $39 million in fiscal 2025. The proposed amount spent on operations would rise from $161 million in fiscal 2024 to $167 million in fiscal 2025. The City's property tax levy rate will be reduced next year slightly to to $16.61 per $1,000 of taxable value as a result of changes to property taxes by state lawmakers in the 2023 session. In fiscal 2024, Davenport's tax levy rate was $16.78. State lawmakers changed the state's property tax formula and eliminated special levies, such as the library and emergency levies, which Davenport used, and combine them into a general levy. Davenport is also proposing to raise user fees as part of a strategy Davenport has employed to raise rates incrementally. A 5% sewer rate increase has already been improved as part of a previous plan by the council, and the solid waste and clean water fees are proposed to be raised by 3%. This, city officials say, is necessary in order to make improvements to public utility assets such as the Water Pollution Control Plant. The city's $39.4 million capital improvement budget includes $14.7 million into city streets and $9.5 million into the city's sewer collection system, according to city budget documents. The city's list of capital improvement projects for fiscal year 2025 include $2.2 million to replace a bridge on East 13th Street that passes over railroad tracks and has been closed since 2018. $1.6 million toward the Mississippi River flood mitigation projects. $760,000 for freight house improvements. $1.4 million for park amenities. City council members discussed overall goals for the next year. Several new council members expressed the goal selection forms were confusing and difficult to jump into. But several goals submitted included, according to budget documents, were reducing crime with focus on gun violence intervention, investing in public safety data and analytics, achieving full staffing within police and fire departments, and reviewing and refining rental inspection processes, investing in improving streets and sewers and evaluating the water pollution control plant, balanced budget without property tax increases, establishing a new I-280 industrial business park, continue momentum on North Park Mall redevelopment, evaluate tax increment finance policy, continue American Rescue Plan Act projects, and evaluate and establish incentives for redeveloping business quarters in Central City. Maintain organizational professionalism and decorum implement elected official code of conduct, hire and onboard a permanent city administrator and corporate counsel, continue Annie Wittenmeyer momentum, expand commercial dream program, enhance nuisance abatement procedures for rental properties. Significant investments are needed in the water pollution control plant, which is operated jointly by Davenport, Bettendorf, Riverdale, and Panorama Park, City staff said during the Saturday budget work session. Interim City Administrator Mallory Merritt said there are some long-term and really short-term capital needs, particularly with digesters. The City retained consultant H.R. Green to evaluate this facility top to bottom and come back with recommendations that are phased in, Merritt said. Merritt said there would be a future discussion on the results of the report, a draft of which City staff were working through but that the improvements would likely require a very large investment. We have been planning for that within our sewer fund, Merritt said. So when you see these past balances, that's really been built up over the last couple of years so that we can address this without creating additional debt. Several other projects are underway on, excuse me, or on the horizon for Davenport which were discussed during the work sessions. At River's Edge, 700 West, excuse me, let me start again. At River's Edge, at 700 West River Drive, the city decommissioned an outdoor, (laughs) nope, they decommissioned an indoor turf field and reverted it back to a second ice rink, which opened at the start of 2024 after hockey families and enthusiasts flooded a park study with requests for additional indoor ice space. Parks Director Chad Dyson said the second ice rink is close to fully booked. Facing competition with other indoor turf facilities, such as the TBK Bank Sports Complex, city staff say bookings declined and the River's Edge required a more than $500,000 transfer in fiscal 2023. Adler Theater and the River Center are due for some upgrades, Merritt said, and the Executive Director, Lance Sadlick, and the City Finance Department were working on a needs assessment and a financing strategy. In 2021, the City started positioning the North Park Mall for redevelopment, creating a new zoning district. This past year, the City, along with Mall owner Massrich, worked with a consultant to perform a market study to identify community needs and opportunities for redevelopment in that location. Merritt said the City anticipates a final report from the consultant in April. The City will continue to implement American Rescue Plan Act funds Davenport was allocated by Congress as part of federal COVID-19 relief for local governments as well as funds from Canadian Pacific following the rail company's merger with Kansas City Southern that is expected to increase train traffic. Looking ahead, the City plans to continue planning for riverfront amenity Main Street Landing under design. Riverfront Railroad Quiet Zones, which are expected to be completed fall of 2025, a bridge over the railroad tracks near Concord Street to ensure access to the Water Pollution Control Plant, which is in the early planning stages, and park amenities.
0: Homicide Suspect in Moline. This was written by Anthony Watt. The Moline Police Department is investigating a suspected homicide. At around 11.44 a.m., officials responded to an apartment building in the 3600 block of 25th Street after being notified of a deceased female in a parked vehicle, according to a news release. The case was a death investigation as of the insurance of the release Wednesday afternoon, but the department suspects the death is a homicide. News, the news release states that the Moline police have someone in custody they consider a person of interest. The department does not believe the incident was random act of violence, the release states. There is no further story threat to the public. Further details about the dead person and the person of interest were not provided in the release. The release did not specify a suspected cause of death. The Moline police asked that anyone with any information about the case contact investigators at 309-797-0401 or Crime Stoppers at 309-762-9500. And this article is written by Grace Kinnicutt. This is also from the front page of the Quad City Times. Early voting begins in Illinois. Early voting for the Illinois primary has begun and will last through March 18th. The Illinois primary will be March 19th, with results expected that evening. From now until March 18th, people can early vote in person or by mail. When and how can people vote? For Rock Island County, in person, early voting will take place in the county's clerk's office until early March, according to the county clerk website. People can vote from 8 a.m. to 4.30 p.m. at the clerk's office from Thursday, February 8th through March 8th. The clerk's office is located in Rock Island at the county office building 1504 3rd Avenue, first floor. Beginning March 9th through March 18th, early voting at the clerk's office will be Monday through Friday from a 8 a.m. to 7 p.m., Saturdays from 8 a.m. to 4 p.m., and Sundays from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. For voting by mail, ballots will be mailed out each day starting Thursday, February 8th. A secure drop box will be available 24-7 in front of the clerk's office. March 14th will be the last day for the clerk's office to receive an application in order to mail out a ballot. Applications can be printed online or people can call the clerk's office at 309-786-8683 to request one. Beginning March 4th, four new sites will open for grace period registration, and early voting. People can visit Western Illinois University, Silvis City Council Chambers, and the Milan Municipal Building from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m., and the Moline Public Library from 11 a.m. to 7 p.m. Registration and voting at these locations will be available through March 15th. Grace period registration and voting also will be available in the clerk's office. For those who need to register or make changes to their voting registration will need to bring in two forms of identification showing current name and address. Voting, those who turn 18 on or before November 5th, 2024 are new to the county have moved since last registering or voting, had a name change or had a felony conviction, but no longer incarcerated can register to vote. More information can be found on the voting information flyer on the county clerk's website. Who's on the ballot? The top race will be the presidential primary. For Democrats, President Joe Biden faces long-shot challenger Minnesota Representative Dean Phillips, author Marianne Williamson, suspended her campaign Wednesday evening. For Republicans, the two candidates still running for the nomination are former President Donald Trump and former South Carolina Governor and U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley. However, there is a court challenge against Trump's presence on the ballot. Along with the presidential question, there are several down-ballot primary races in the Quad Cities area. Congressional and state races. Current Democratic U.S. Representative Eric Sorensen does not have a challenge in the primary. Two Republicans will face off in the primary for the 17th Congressional District. Retired Judge Joe McCraw and former Afsme President John or Scott Crowell are vying to challenge Sorensen. McCross served as a judge in the 17th Judicial Circuit for Boone and Winnebago counties for more than two decades. He also served as chief judge from 2012 to 2017 and was the presiding judge over the criminal division from 2004. In a phone interview with the dispatch Argus slash Quad City Times last October, McGraw said he decided to run based on things he saw as a prosecutor and then a judge and how they impacted communities in the nation. McGraw is being aided by the National Republican Congressional Committee. Crowell, told a reporter last October that he is running because of inflation, the deficit, and to push for energy independence. Kroll also is a lifelong farmer from Milan. For the state's 72nd House District, Rep. Greg Johnson, Democrat East Moline, does not face a challenger in the primary. Charlie Helmick, Republican candidate for the 72nd house district, also does not have a challenger in the primary. State Republican Representative Ryan Spain, who represents a northern portion of Rock Island County, does not face a challenger in the primary. Nor is there a Democratic running in the race. The 37th Senate district which also includes a portion of Northern Rock Island County, has three Republicans running in the primary. No Democrat filed to run. Current state GOP Senator Wynn Stoller did not run for reelection. re-election. Tim Yeager from Geneso Lil Orellano Jr. from Dixon and Chris Bishop from Dixon are vying for the gop spot for the 37th senate district the 71st house district which includes portions of moline east moline Silvis, and coal valley will not have a contested race current republican representative dan swanson is the only candidate running the 94th house district seat which includes a southern portion of Rock Island County, also is not expected to have a contested race. Current Republican, Representative Noreen Hammond, is the only candidate running. The local races. There is no contested race for a majority of the local seats. No Republican filed to run for county auditor, circuit clerk, coroner, reorder, Recorder or State Attorney, Auditor April Palmer, Circuit Clerk Tammy Weikert, Coroner Brian Gustafson, Recorder Kelly Fisher, and State Attorney Dora Villarreal are running again. All are Democrats and none of them face a challenge. Ten county board seats are up for grabs, which none contested in the primary. Only one board seat has a candidate from both parties running. County board candidates, District 1, Republican Rich Morthlin, no Democrat filed. District 4, Democrat Luis Moreno, no Republican filed. District 6, 6, Democrat Porter McNeil, no Republican filed. District 10, Democrat Richard... Quitas Brunk, no Republican filed. District 11, Democrat Timothy Foster, no Republican filed. District 14, Democrat Enyo DeWitt, no Republican filed. District 15, Democrat Kai Swanson, no Republican filed. District 16, Republican Rodney Simmer, no Democrat filed. District 17 Democrat Johnny Woods, no Republican filed. District 19 Democrat Jeff Stuhler and Republican J Robert Westfall. And that's it for those articles.
1: Okay, the next article is Clinton man reaches plea deal. This is by Thomas Geyer. A Clinton man who shot his father to death in December has reached a plea deal with Clinton County prosecutors. During a hearing Saturday in Clinton County District Court, District Court Judge Jeffrey Burt accepted the plea of Marquise Danae Winston, 33. Winston pleaded guilty to the lesser-included charge of involuntary manslaughter as a habitual offender and the lesser-included charge of possession of a firearm by a felon as a habitual offender. Each charge is a Class D felony under Iowa law that carries a prison sentence of 5 years. According to the plea agreement, as a habitual offender, Winston could be sentenced to up to 15 years on each count. The parties have agreed that the sentences in the case will be served consecutively or back to back. As a habitual offender, he will have to serve a minimum of 3 years on each count before he becomes eligible for parole. A charge of first degree murder was dropped in the plea agreement. Winston is scheduled to be sentenced March 14 in Clinton County District Court. He is being held in the Clinton County Jail on a $1 million cash-only bond. According to the factual basis filed in the case, Winston admitted that on December 31st, he unintentionally caused the death of his father, 50-year-old James McKinley Douglas Jr. Winston said he accidentally discharged a gun that he illegally had in his possession. The bullet struck Douglas in the chest. Douglas was taken to Mercy One Clinical Medical Center where he died of his wound. Winston is on parole in Clinton County until September 18, 2027 according to the Iowa Department of Corrections website. He was given a 10-year sentence in 2017 on a burglary charge and a 10-year sentence in 2020 on a charge of possession with the intent to deliver less than 5 grams of meth. He was released from prison and placed on work release on March 9, 2022. He was placed on parole on August 1st, 2022. And a short article here out of the Rock Island High School. Social media threats lead to police presence by Olivia Allen. Rock Island High School had heavy police presence on Wednesday due to threats that were circulated on social media. District officials sent a message notifying Rocky families of the situation around 7.40 a.m. We have been made aware of photos circulating around on social media. Police are investigating this. The message reads, Out of caution, we will have a large police presence at the high school today. The school did not go, down, go on lockdown. Jenna Pinacucci, spokeswoman for Rock Island Milan Schools, said no other information was available as of noon Wednesday. The incident follows several others at schools around the Quad Cities this week, including lockdowns at Moline High School and Roosevelt Elementary in Moline due to a false bomb threat and at Longfellow School in Rock Island due to a report of a juvenile with a firearm.
0: Saturn's moon could have underground ocean. This is out of Cape Canaveral, Florida. Astronomers have found the best evidence yet of a vast young ocean beneath the icy exterior of Saturn's Death Star lookalike mini-moon. The French-led team analyzes changes in MIMA's orbit and rotation and reported Wednesday that a hidden ocean 12 to 18 miles beneath the frozen crust was more likely than an elongated rocky core. The scientists based their findings on observations by NASA's Cassini spacecraft, which observed Saturn and its more than 140 moons for more than a decade before diving through the ringed planet's atmosphere in 2017 and burning up. Barely 250 miles in diameter, the heavily cratered moon lacks the fractures and geysers, typical signs of surface activity of Saturn's Enceladus and Jupiter's Europa. Mimas was probably the most unlikely place to look for global ocean and liquid water more generally co-author Valerie Laney of the Paris Observatory said in an email, quote, so that looks like a potential habitable world, but nobody knows how much time is needed for life to arise. Results were published in the journal Nature. The ocean is believed to fill half of Mimas' volume, according to Laney, yet it represents only 1.2% to 1.4% of Earth's oceans giving the moon, moon's petite size. Despite being so small, MIMIS boasts the second largest impact crater of any moon in the solar system. The reason it's compared to the fictional Death Star space station in Star Wars. The idea that r- relatively small icy moons can harbor young oceans is inspiring. SETI Institutes, Majiga, Cook, and Southwestern Research Institutes, Alyssa Rose Roden wrote in an accompanying editorial. They were not part of the study. Believed between 5 million and 15 million years old, this subterranean ocean would have an overall temperature right around freezing, according to Laney, But at the seafloor, he said the water temperature could be much warmer. Co-author Nick Cooper of Queen Mary University of London said the existence of a remarkably young ocean of liquid water makes Mimas a prime candidate for studying the origin of life. Discovered in 1789 by English astronomer William Herschel, Mimus' name is after a giant in Greek mythology. Prince William returns to duties. This is out of London. Prince William returned to royal duties Wednesday for the first time since his father, King Charles III, announced his cancer diagnosis and his wife, Kate, that's William's wife, Kate, was hospitalized for abdominal surgery. William performed an investiture ceremony at Windsor Castle. He was scheduled to attend a fundraising dinner for London's Air Ambulance Charity on Wednesday evening. The 41-year-old heir to the throne temporarily stepped away from public duties last month to help care for Kate and their children after her operation for undisclosed condition. The Princess of Wales, formerly Kate Middleton, isn't expected to resume public duties until April. But Charles' cancer diagnosis this week put extra pressure on the royal family, with the king suspending his public appearances to focus on treatment and recovery. Quote, his absence is putting a lot of pressure on the other members of the royal family who are certainly up to it said Sally Bettle-Smith, author of Prince Charles, The Passions and Paradoxes of an Improbable Life. And having one of the great stars of the royal family, the Princess of Wales, in recuperation from a surgery magnifies those strains. Prime Minister Rishi Sunak Downing Street office said he will have his weekly audience with the king over the phone following the diagnosis. Charles's illness comes at an awkward time for the House of Windsor. The king, who ascended the throne just 17 months ago, has pledged to reduce the cost of the monarchy in part by keeping a lid on the number of, quote, working royals, whose public duties are supported by taxpayer funds, but with two of the most visible family members at sick, it will be more challenging for the family to keep up. In addition to the widely publicized pomp and ceremony of royal processions and state visits, the Windsors attended hundreds of little known events every year to recognize the accomplishments of the public and mark local events such as the opening of libraries and community centers. Hundreds of charities cherish royal appearances which give visibility and credibility to their work among potential donors. The 75-year-old King was seen in public for the first time since his cancer diagnosis when he left his offices at Clarence House on Tuesday after a brief reunion with his younger son, Prince Harry. Harry arrived in London from California less than 24 hours after Buckingham Palace announced the King's cancer diagnosis. The meeting raised hopes that the pair can repair their troubled relationship after Harry publicly criticized the royal family for unconscious racism and complained about the way his American Biracial wife, former actor Meghan Markle, was treated by palace officials. Harry and Meghan, once seen as stars of the royal family, who could help the Windsors connect with the younger generation, walked away from royal duties in 2020 and now live in California.
1: Okay, we have no obituaries today. So we'll turn to the opinion section, and I'll start with a. Another view from the Wall Street Journal. Will President finally deter militias? Iran? Telegraphed U.S. attacks in Iraq and Syria don't appear to be doing the job so far. The United States last week launched what must be one of the most advertised military attacks against an enemy in history, with what the Pentagon said were Broadcast for days that strikes would be coming after the drone attack that killed three Americans at a U.S. base in Jordan. Biden administration officials signaled that the strikes were likely to be against the militias and not against Iran. Leaks to the media even suggested the U.S. was waiting for the skies to be clear in the Middle East. Militia leaders can't say they weren't warned. If any of them were still around the target areas, they are the world's dumbest terrorists. U.S. officials said the strikes hit 85 targets that included command and control centers and storage facilities for rockets and missiles. Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps officers are likely to have vamoosed. At least the administration has signaled that the U.S. strikes could last for days or longer. They have a lot of capability. I have a lot more, said Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin. The question is whether the U.S. will use enough of that capability to finally send a message of deterrence that sinks in. The weak U.S. retaliatory strikes haven't worked so far, despite more than 160 enemy attacks on U.S. bases or ships since mid-October. The multiple U.S. warnings recently send a message that the U.S. doesn't want to do too much damage to the militias, who might consider that another sign that the U.S. fears escalation. The attacks on Americans are likely to end only when the enemy fears escalation more than President Joe Biden does. The real test will be whether these strikes and covert U.S. actions such as cyber attacks will deter Iran. The rulers in Tehran are the terror masters behind these militias, and so far they have paid no price for helping to kill Americans. The White House has used its Boswells at the Washington Post and New York Times to suggest that President Biden is the wise voice of restraint in contrast to war-hungry members of Congress. But that restraint has resulted in three dead and many wounded Americans, and a Houthi missile narrowly missed a U.S. Navy destroyer in the Red Sea. There's a time for restraint and a time for using enough force against the right targets so that U.S. troops are no longer fodder for enemy target practice.
0: And uh, your mic wasn't working a little bit earlier, so there's some of that uh, that didn't get read, so sorry about that. But we've got it fixed now, I think. All right, so uh, there's a cartoon on the opinion section. I don't think you described that, did you? it's uh i th- well, it's Trump uh and he's got the just the trunk of the elephant that he's pulling and pointing, and how the elephant got his trunk is the caption at the top of the cartoon, and I'm gonna read this article by Lynn Schmidt, and no. The war in Gaza isn't about white supremacy. For someone who has been writing about politics for several years in this political environment, it came as a surprise when I heard a politician say something that shocked me. Yet that was my exact reaction when I heard U.S. Rep. Representative Cory Bush's speech at her re-election campaign kickoff, January 27th. Bush, a Missouri Democrat from St. Louis, spoke in front of about 200 of her supporters at a rally in North St. Louis County. About 20 minutes in, she started talking about U.S. aid to Israel. For context, at the end of October, President Joe Biden requested from Congress at least $14.3 billion in addition assistance to Israel which would include money for the Iron Dome, in quotes, and other air and missile defense systems. Bush, like many others on the political left, had been a vocal critic of Israel's military response in Gaza and U.S. support of it. In Bush's speech to her supporters, she reflected money being used, quote, to help drop bombs on kids. A few minutes later, she added, This is not about anti-Semitism. It's not about whether I hate Jewish people or not, because I absolutely do not. What What it is about is white supremacy. You read that right. Bush called the act of Israel defending its very existence white supremacy, in quotes. Her comments are so absurd that I find it difficult to even square that circle. White supremacy is an ideologically ideology that believes the white race is superior to non-white people. Jewish people are generally not considered white in this context, according to the American Jewish Committee's website. Quote, Jews are a primary target of the white supremacist movement, Look no further than the 2018 Tree of Life Synagogue shooting in Pittsburgh as an example. The anti-Semitic terrorist attack by Robert Gregory Bowers killed 11 people and wounded 6, including several Holocaust survivors. I wonder how many Jewish Americans, especially those in St. Louis area, know that Bush is lumping them together with white supremacists the same, very same group that have tried to eliminate Jews from the face of the earth. Bush uttered those words on the day before International Holocaust Remembrance Day. Joining Bush at the campaign kickoff event was a fellow squad, in quotes, member Representative Rashida Tahib, Democrat from Michigan the first Palestinian-American elected to the U.S. House, as well as three members of the St. Louis Board of Aldermen. Bush has been vocal in her support of Palestinian rights and an outspoken critic of Israel, especially following the October 7th attack by Hamas, in which about 1,200 Israeli men, women, children, and babies were killed. Some 240 others were kidnapped and many were raped. But Bush seemingly glosses over that Hamas mission charter states its goals of destroying the state of Israel through jihad or Islamic holy war. Israel has every right to defend itself and attempt to rescue its hostages. One can certainly be critical of Israel's responses of its leadership Of Prime Minister Bibi Netanyahu and grieve for the thousands of innocent Palestinians killed during the retaliation. It is also Bush's prerogative and duty as a member of Congress to question the amount of U.S. aid to Israel. But calling Israel's conduct white supremacy, in quotes, is incorrect, not helpful and shows a profound lack of understanding of the very complex situation taking place in the middle east bush doesn't appear to care that her comments make no sense nor is she apparently concerned about historical correctness she also seemingly holds no empathy for the israeli people killed at the hands of hamas nor worried about the saint louis jewish community that is at risk of anti-Semitic attacks here. Instead, she is tapping into her previous role as an ordained minister, riling up her fervent supporters. Bush's speech, like those of other politicians like her, from both sides of the aisle, is protected under the First Amendment of the Constitution. Political speech has the greatest protection. Still, it is the job of institutions such as the press to highlight inaccuracies and ridiculousness in such speech as well as to attempt to break through the constant barrage of misinformation and disinformation. It is then up to Bush's voters, constituents, and political party to decide if she is speaking and acting with their best interest and befit befitting the district
1: okay we have another uh, column here the opinion section biden could win even with abysmal approval rating and this is an article by jonah goldberg there's bad news and good news for those who want to see president joe biden win in 2024 or, or who really just want to see former president donald trump lose The bad news is that in the era of modern polling, no president has ever won re-election with approval ratings as low at this point in their first term. For fairly obvious reasons, incumbent presidents generally need to get at least close to 50% favorability by Election Day to win. Biden's approval has been stubbornly low, around 40% in polling averages, despite an improving economy. The good news is that approval numbers may not matter. You may have noticed that a lot of the old rules of politics have passed their expiration dates. The truism, as goes Ohio, so goes the nation, for example, Ohio always backs the winner, didn't apply in 2020. The still widespread conviction that politics is all about raising money and that donors have outsized influence to pick the winner hasn't really been true for quite a while. Just as Michael Bloomberg or Ron DeSantis just ask Michael Bloomberg or Ron DeSantis. From 1888 to 1996 the Electoral College vote followed the popular vote. In 2000 and again in 2016 that didn't happen. For decades winning presidential and congressional candidates followed the rule that you swing to the base in the primaries and then, take back, then tack back to the center in the general election. Barack Obama largely ignored that rule and Trump really ignored it successfully. Most senatorial and congressional candidates ignore that rule entirely. That's because the real challenge to incumbency is in primaries, not general elections. Candidates increasingly rely on turning out their base rather than persuading voters in the middle. This points to one reason why approval ratings may not matter as much as they used to. In a polarized electorate, most voters vote against the other party more than they vote for their own. A recent Quinnipiac poll finds that among voters who dislike both candidates, Biden has a commanding 13-point lead. If that holds, it could be all Biden needs. A second reason why approval ratings might be unreliable, Trump is essentially running as a Republican incumbent. Normally, presidents who lose don't run again, and they certainly don't claim that they didn't actually lose. Presidential approval ratings have tended to be predictive because a re-election bid is a referendum on an incumbent's first term. Do voters want more of the same or change? But voters already know what a Trump presidency would be like. Or they can be reminded with a barrage of negative ads. Trump left office with an approval rating of 34%. It's true that Trump is beating Biden in many hypothetical matchups in battleground states, That should worry Democrats and anyone else who doesn't want Trump in the White House. But Trump's unfavorable ratings are still higher than Biden's. Indeed, Trump has always had a high floor of support, about 34%, but also a very low ceiling, about 48%. Unlike Biden, Trump has never actually been popular. In a general election, when partisans reluctantly come home, basically to vote against the other party, Biden probably has a much larger pool of hold-your-nose voters to rely on. The expiration or temporary suspension of other rules is relevant, too. Republicans in 2022 were expecting a red tsunami, given Biden's unpopularity and the struggling economy. Democrats did shockingly well because they ran, in effect, against Trump and Trumpism and for abortion rights. Indeed, the old rule that the abortion issue helps Republicans got turned on its head after the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. As recent state initiatives suggest, Biden could be carried by abortion rights voters alone. Biden is already opening a massive gender gap with Trump. Abortion surely explains much of it, though his trials for assaulting and defaming writer E. Jean Carroll and for allegedly paying hush money to a porn star mistress probably didn't help. Attacking Taylor Swift, as his most ardent supporters have done recently, won't fix that. All of that said, if you believe a second Trump presidency would be a disaster for the country, rerunning a very unpopular incumbent on the hunch that the old rules no longer apply seems like a risky bet. Again, that was from Jonah Goldberg, who is editor-in-chief of The Dispatch.
0: And even though I didn't see any obituaries, there is notices in here of the pending funerals coming up, and I'll read those to you. Uh, Wilma I. Atkinson, 91, of Davenport, Iowa, formerly of Bettendorf, Iowa, passed away Monday, February fifth, twenty 2024, at Jersey Ridge Place in Davenport. Arrangements are pending at McGinnis Chambers Funeral Home in Bettendorf. John Mahler, 87, of Silvis, Illinois, passed away Tuesday, February 6th at Aspen Rehab and Healthcare, Silvis. Arrangements are pending in Mississippi Valley cremation and direct burial in Moline. Marianne Gerton, 76, of Genesco, Illinois, passed away Monday, February 5th at Hammond Henry Hospital, Gen- Geneso. Arrangements are pending at Vandemore Funeral Homes and Crematory in Genesso Chapel. Sarah Leonora Welch, 69 of Davenport, Iowa, passed away Sunday, February 4th at Genesis Medical Center East. Arrangements are pending at Mississippi Valley Cremation and Direct Burial in Moline. Jared Scott Conger, 47 of Davenport, Iowa, Passed away Tuesday, February 6, 2024, at home. Arrangements are pending at McGinnis Chambers Funeral Home in Benton Kathleen K. Lawson, 80, of Davenport, Iowa. Passed away Wednesday, February 7, at home. Arrangements are pending at Halligan McCabe DeVries Funeral Home in Davenport. Arlene Wireup, eighty six of Baldwin, Iowa, passed away Tuesday, february sixth at Addington Place in Clinton, Iowa. Arrangements are pending at Carson Celebration of Life Center, Makokoda. Lisa Talbot, fifty seven of Alito, Illinois, passed away Monday, february fifth at Select Specialty Hospital in Davenport. Arrangements are pending at Mississippi Valley Cremation and Direct Burial, Moline. Ray J. Theriot, Jr., 66, of Golden Valley, Minnesota, passed away Monday, February 5th, at Unity Point Health, Trinity Rock Island. Cremation will be directed by Cremation Society of Quad Cities and we didn't get much of the sports read, so I'm going to read uh, a, an article from there. Uh, it's on the, from the front page. Duo out to make a splash, and there's a picture of the two guys that they're talking about in the article standing in front of the pool in their swim trunks. Duo out to make a splash, PV's Chiles, Gorman, take lead times into last competition. Pleasant Valley High School senior swimmers Owen Childs and Will Gorman are ready to make their mark this weekend at the Iowa High School Athletic Association state meet. The PV duo and the rest of the state's top performers meet at the University of Iowa for the two-day a event starting Friday. I am looking forward to the meet, a pumped Gorman said, before a weekday practice session. We had a great district meet last Saturday, and we went into the meet having fun and hoping our relays went well, which they did. I am very confident, Childs said, of the state finals. I think in the races we have qualified, I think, I think... We were very strong in every single one of them, including the relays. I think we would have the chance to break a couple of the state records. The Spartans finished second to host Dubuque-Hempstead at last Saturday's district meet, turning in a record-breaking performance. The highlight of the meet was Child's state record in the 100-yard backstroke, posting a time of 47.97 seconds, the previous record was 48.85 seconds, by, set by Waukee's Asher Heavenhill on February 11th of 2022. Quote, Me breaking the record came out of left field. I really was not expecting that. Child said, "I was already going fast at the meet. I have, I had a couple of jokes saying." What if I got the state record in the 100 back? I thought there was a uh, possibility of getting it, but I did not expect to break the record by almost an entire second. It's a really good feeling. That was Owen's first state record and was certainly exciting, Pleasant Valley coach Stacy Sapolsky said. He had a short conversion, conversation with me, prior to the event, and asked me if I thought he could break the record, which is usually a sign that he could maybe achieve that at the district meet. My response was, sure, let's check that, out, that box and move on. He was able to break the record, which was pretty exciting. A year ago, Childs and Gorman combined for six top three finishes at the state meet, including two second-place swims. However, neither won a coveted gold medal as PV placed fifth as a team. Quote, we just have to go for it and not hold anything back, especially in the races I'm competing in, Child said. I am swimming in some of the shorter races like the 100 freestyle and the 100 backstroke. We cannot hold anything back in those races. You just have to go for it. I think if I keep focused these next couple of days, the success will come. With their high school careers winding down, the standouts reflected fondly on their time at PV. Quote, I will definitely miss the team and the coaches, Child said. We just had a lot of fun on the team. One of the most important things about practicing in any sport is having fun during it. Because if you're not having fun, then you're going to not want to do it and put in the work. We have the perfect balance of having fun and putting the work in and having competition, which is just great to be around. I will definitely miss my teammates, Gorman said. I made a lot of bonds here. In my last year, I met some new people and made some new friends. I will definitely miss them but I will be excited to come back during the holidays and see them in practice. Both are headed to the NCAA Division I level next. Quote, I went on an official visit to the University of Cincinnati this past summer, Child said. I met the team and loved the team. We had a real chill time playing some basketball, then sitting around a bonfire. It was a really good experience. I liked all the people, the pool, and all the swim coaches. I just think it was the place to go. Sometimes it just clicks when you go for a visit. Gorman, seated number one in the 500 freestyle and second in the 200 free at this weekend state meet, will forge his own path at the University of Indiana. Quote, I really like the University of Indiana's pool, Gorman said, of why he selected Indiana over his other finalist in Kenyon College, a Division III school. I also know another student there who swam in Iowa and is one of my friends. Both are fantastic options, but I am just really excited to go to the University of Indiana. Zapolski loved having both Chiles and Gorman, on the team over the past four years and brought they and appreciated what both brought to the pool every day. The quote the two of them arrive at the pool every day with two things one, a positive attitude and two, the willingness to work hard no matter how they are feeling and what is going on that day, Zabolsky said. Because of that, the two of them not only set the tone for the rest of the team, but also set the pace for the rest of the team. That is a lot on their shoulders that they take seriously. But they are still able to have a lot of fun with their teammates and still able to accomplish a lot. And that brings us to the end of the Quad City Times for today. I'm Mark Morrison, and my partner at the microphone has been Teresa Whitaker. You can listen to IRIS programs on any computer or smart device at any time at iowaradioreading.org. Thank you for listening to IRIS, Iowa's first and only radio reading service.